as we mentioned before, we're still in the book of Joshua. We're going to be there for a little longer. We're in Joshua chapter 19, but we're going to do a quick review of Joshua 18 from last week. Now, we were in verses from 11 all the way to verse 28. And what we did was, <clears throat> in that scripture, Joshua's kind of laying out for us um, the parameters of the property that's going to be given to the tribe of Benjamin. And in that, we took it as kind of a jumping off point to sort of learn about Benjamin, to look at their story and kind of figure out where they come from. And we went back to the beginning, to Benjamin, the son who was the, he was the 12th son of Jacob. Now, he's born into a position of privilege. He was given this opportunity to really thrive. And what we saw with him is, unfortunately, it didn't turn into blessings in his life. He did not meet the, um, the potential that he had. And we saw the same thing true of his offspring. They were blessed whenever they did receive land. They were given the amazing gift of to be given the city of Jerusalem. Now, this is God's holy city. We see it listed as Zion in Scripture and many other things. And what we notice is the fact that this is kind of the focal point of all spiritual things all the way into the book of Revelation. But instead of valuing what they were given, the Bible says that 14 years after receiving it, it was still called a city of the Jebusites. They did not even ever take possession of it. So they missed out on doing what it is that God asked of them. Then we also saw that when it came to dealing with sin, the Benjamites had had a, an awful, awful instance of situation that took place in a place that they had called Gebeah, which was one of the Benjamite cities. And when it was brought to their attention, as the other tribes all came, all 11 said, listen, there's something that's been horrifically unrighteous done in your midst. And when they brought it to their attention and said, this must be dealt with, let us deal with these men that did this evil, instead of standing against the ones that did the evil... They actually united with those that did evil and stood against their brothers. So they, they literally embraced sin and pushed against righteousness. Now the result of that was that devastation came to the Benjamites. They were almost completely wiped out. They went from tens of thousands of men and soldiers down to literally just a handful of a few hundred. We saw this incredible devastation. But then we see God's grace yet again, another opportunity for privilege. What happened to Benjamin? Now, 330 years later, the tribe will have been rebuilt by the grace of God and the love of their brethren. And then what happens? God says, you know what? There's an opportunity. The people have begged and cried out for a king. Now, it wasn't time yet. There was, a David. There was David who was supposed to be the king. But they said, no, we want a king now. We want to be like all the other nations. Bring us a king. And he's like, okay. Gather everybody together, all 12 tribes. And I'm going to pick out of those 12 tribes, out of the millions of men, I'll choose one specific man. I'm going to give him the privilege of being king. And he chose out of the tribe of Benjamin a man named Saul. And Saul, boy, oh boy, he started off good, but man, it quickly went right into the ground. Paul, Saul did a terrible job because of his pride and because of his arrogance. Unfortunately, he would die a disgrace. And we saw this sort of continuing pattern of failure in their story. And what we did was we literally correlated it to our story. How so many times we're all given such amazing gifts we're given privilege of being children of God. We're given the privilege of God providing for us our needs, our wants, our desires. We're put in this country where we have such incredible, bountiful uh, blessings. I mean, consider there are people around the world right now that are struggling to get a copy, a single copy of the Word of God. Just one. They're struggling to get one. They'll rip one and tear it into parts and share it by chapter because it's so valuable. And how many of us have more than one copy? Yeah, we've got copies on our shelves that we haven't even, even thought about. Oh, that's my child Bible, and that was this Bible, and this is what I'm at. And then I transitioned over here, and then we have it on our phone. We have so much. Yeah. And yet we don't 
take advantage of it. Then we're given the power, right? The power of the gospel. God entrusts it to us to share the truth of God's word, to take someone from broken to restored, to take those that are literally in the depths of sin and draw them out of it and restore them and make them whole. A gift, a privilege, and yet so many of us squander it just like the Benjamites. And then we see, so here's the sadness. We can relate to their failure. But what's amazing is God goes back to the same tribe, the Benjamites, a thousand years later, and he brings a man out of the Benjamite tribe named Saul. And he entrusts Saul with the gospel message. He gives him power to preach. He gives him the ability to change lives. He works miraculously through him like no one else we see in Scripture. Man, Paul is the man. Oh, I didn't change his name. Saul becomes Paul. My bad. Um, And so we see the redemption of the Benjamites through Saul. He fulfilled his potential. He did all that God expected of him. We see that and we go, okay, great. So what we're going to do today is we're going to continue kind of with that same vein. We're going to follow with the tribes. But now we're going to switch over to a tribe called Simeon, right? the tribe of Simeon. And what we'll see is another story of redemption, but it's going to be a different path that we're going to see take place this morning in our message, which is called From Ruin to Redemption, the tribe of Simeon. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of word and truth, the gift of the Spirit of God. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity that we have to gather in your house, Lord, to proclaim your word. Uh, Father, to learn of you, to, uh, to get to know you even more intimately through your word. Thank you so much for the incredible intricacies of the Bible. Thank you for the gift of the Old Testament and the New Testament and the things that you teach us every single week. Thank you, Lord, for what you've taught me and the way you've opened my heart and eyes. I do pray that, God, you'd speak through me. You know, my desire is not to be heard or to be important. God, if I could vanish, I would. But, Lord, uh, I can't. So I'm just going to do what you've asked me to do. And, Lord, I pray that you'd help me to remove the human element. And, God, that your spirit would speak clearly to our hearts that we would receive what we need. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to pick up in Joshua chapter 19, verses 1 through 9. It says here, And the second lot came forth to Simeon, even for the tribe of the children of Simeon, according to their families. Notice this detail. And their inheritance was within the inheritance of the children of Judah. And they had in their inheritance, I'm going to butcher these names, just bear with me. If you're from one of these cities, I apologize. Um, Beersheba, or Sheba, Moladah, and from Hazar Shul, and from Bala, and from Azam, and Eltalad, and Bethul, and Hormah, and Ziklag, and Beth, Markaboth, and Hazar Susa, and Beth Labaoth, and Sharahun, and that's probably terrible. That's, that's not how it's said. Anyway, 13 cities and their villages. Ain, Remen, Ether, um, Ashan, four cities and their villages. And all the villages that were round about these cities of Baalath Beer, Ramath of the south. This is the inheritance of the tribe of the children of, of Simeon, according to their families. Notice this. Out of the portion of the children of Judah was the inheritance of the children of Simeon. For the part of the children of Judah was too much for them. Therefore, the children of Simeon had their inheritance within the inheritance of of them. Now, if you look at your map, okay, what we notice as we see them is they're look, they literally they take up a section. What you'll notice is there are no borders given for the land that is given to Simeon. All we see is a list of cities. They are given the opportunity to have jurisdiction over 19 different cities. So there's a difference here. Now, we notice that the introduction into when we talk about their inheritance, literally it says it is a part of Judah's inheritance. 
They are literally just being given a portion that they can manage. Notice how verse 9 ends. It says, Out of the portion of the children of Judah was the inheritance of the children of Simeon. As a tribe, they are simply given a portion of land that they are allowed to manage, but they do not own the land themselves. There is no other tribe that receives an inheritance like this. Now, why? Why? Now, in order to understand, what we'll do is we'll go to the progenitor of the tribe. We're going to look at, again, the story of Simeon. This is the second son of Jacob. And as we consider his story and his descendant story, what we're going to see is we're going to examine the downfall and disappearance of that name from history. Then we'll also see it, actually, the eventual reemergence and the redemption of that name through a very special man that will bring honor back to that name. Now, in order to understand the story of Simeon, we first start off looking at his mother. Right? His mother's name was Leah. Now, last week, as we talked about um, Benjamin, we talked about his mom. His name was Rachel. And boy, she was, Jacob was all about her, man. He was, boom, 100% in love with her. And what we know was he had set his heart on Rachel initially, and then her father's name was Laban. And Laban had an older daughter. Her name was Leah. And what happened was he said, listen, if I come work for seven years, can I have Rachel? And he's like, absolutely. And he works for seven years, and then the wedding night comes, and in the dark of the night in the tent, he slides this woman in there, and, and Jacob goes in, and they consummate their marriage, and he wakes up the next morning, rolls over, he's like, Rachel, I... <laughs> Sorry. I'm assuming Leah's not that attractive. I don't know. But anywho, <laughs> he's like, yeah! And he's like, what in the world? How did this happen? And he goes to Laban, and he's like, now, well, explain this to me. This whole deal was about Rachel. And he's like, well, you know, I know that. But, you know, she's older, and I needed to marry her off. So there, you know, that's a done deal. And he's like, well, I want Rachel. And he's like, okay, seven more years. So he spends seven more years, and eventually, guess what? He does end up with, with Rachel. So now he has, he has two wives. But what we know is that Leah felt unloved. Okay? In fact, when we read our scripture, what we're going to see is the fact that she says she knew she was hated. Okay? So from her perspective... She's unloved. She's unwanted, right? She's a mistake as far as she's concerned. So then what we have is a situation where what does she bring to the party? What does she bring to the marriage? What she does bring is she can bring children. She's fertile. Now, Rachel is going to be barren. She's not going to have children until later in life. But what we'll find is the fact that uh, Leah is going to bring the first to the fourth sons. We're going to see Reuben. We're going to see Simeon. We'll see Levi. And we'll see Judah. Those are all going to come from Leah. And we see this chronicled for us in Genesis chapter 29. Here it goes, 29 verses 33-35. And he went in also unto Rachel, and he loved also Rachel more than Leah, and served, and served with him yet seven other years. And when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, listen, even God recognizes his lack of love for her, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bare a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, Surely the Lord hath looked upon my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. Isn't that heartbreaking? Right? And the name Reuben means son. Verse 33 says, And she conceived again and bare a son and said, Because the Lord hath heard that I was hated, he hath therefore given me this son also. She called his name Simeon. His name means to be heard. Verse 34 says, And she conceived again and bare a son and said, Now, uh, this time will my husband be joined unto me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore was his name called Levi. And guess what his name is called? It means joined. And then we have verse 35. And she conceived again and bare a son. And she said, Now will I praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. And his name means praise and left bearing. So Leah, following those 
four will eventually give two more sons. You'll see Issachar and, and um, Zebulun. And then he also will, she also will bring a daughter named Dinah. And Dinah is going to be inst- instrumental in understanding why it is that Simeon receives the inheritance that he receives. And in order to understand it, we go back to 1906 B.C. Now, at this point in time, Jacob, who would become Israel, and his family are living in the land of Canaan. This is 65 years before they're going to escape the famine. Remember whenever Joseph goes into captivity and eventually Joseph will be in place. And then when the Egyptians have all that stored grain and all that food, God has a provision for the, for the Israelites, for Jacob and his sons to go to, Israel, to Egypt. And when they're there, eventually they're going to fall into enslavement and all that stuff. But that's a different story. We're not going to get into that. But this is, this is the circumstance. This is where we are. They're in Canaan at this time in Genesis chapter 34. And what we'll do today as we look into Genesis 40, 44, 34 is we'll see the ruin, the ruin of Simeon. Verse, chapter Genesis 34, verses 1 through 18. It says, And Dinah, the daughter of Leah, which she bare unto Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and defile her. Okay, this is a sexual, it sounds like a rape almost. And it says, And his soul clave unto Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the damsel and spake kindly unto the damsel. Okay, so maybe it started off as a, in a wrong relationship, but now he says, Man, I've fallen in love with this girl. And Sheshub spake unto his father Hamor, saying, Get me this damsel to wife. Do not talk to your dad like that. Just saying. Um, <laughs> Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter. Now his sons were with his cattle in the field, and Jacob held his peace until they were come. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out unto Jacob to commune with him. So Shechem, the dad, shows up. He's come to meet with Jacob. And the sons of Jacob came out of the field when they heard it, and the men, and the men were grieved. Okay, they heard the story, and they're, they're frustrated. It says, and they were very wroth, because he hath wrought folly in Israel in lying with Jacob's daughter, which thing ought not to be done. And Hamor communed with them, saying, The soul of my son... Shechem, he longeth for your daughter. I pray you give her him to wife. He says, listen, I know it's a bad situation. I know things have not gone well. But listen, I'm telling you, my son loves your daughter. Would you allow us to consummate this marriage? Can we do things the right way? He says, verse 9, he says, And make ye marriages with us, and give your daughters unto us, and take our daughters unto you. Listen, we can become a family. We're willing to make things right. Okay, so understand, at this time, there's no prohibition against them marrying outside of the people. Because recognize at this point in time, there's, that edict is not going to be given by God for 500 years. We see it in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3, where it tells the Jewish people that they're not to wed outside of their people. But at this time, you've got to realize that the Jewish nation does not exist. Okay? People think back to Abraham, and they go, Abraham was a Jew. What you need to know is by birth, Abraham was an Assyrian. He was an Assyrian who God called to to be the the, the progenitor of the people of God. And he made a covenant with him in Genesis chapter number 17. And in that uh, covenant, that's when circumcision came into the picture. And it was a physical connection to to make a covenant with God. And that took place with Abraham. So now what we have is we don't see these are not the Israelite people per se. Now, they are the children of Israel, but they, they are not Jewish people yet. That does not actually take place. The, the term Jew actually comes from Judah, right? Judah later on when 
Well, I'm not getting all the details, but anyway, that's where it comes from. We'll cover that later if you have any questions. But the point is this. At this time, what we have is Israel and his sons, Jacob and his sons, they are simply followers of God. They're keepers of the covenant that God had made with them. So keep in mind, at this time, Jacob's name won't be actually changed. We're in chapter 34. His name doesn't change until chapter 35. Then later on, they'll become a nation when they flourish in Egypt. All that to be said, what Hamor is asking is not illegitimate. It's not wrong. What he's asking for is allowed. Verse 10, And ye shall dwell with us in the land um, shall be before you. Dwell and trade ye therein and get you possessions therein. And Sheshem said unto her father, and uh, uh, said unto her father and to her brethren, speaking to Jacob and the and the brothers, let me find grace in your eyes. This is the young man. Let me find grace in your eyes. And what ye shall say unto me, I will give. Whatever you tell me, I'll do it. Ask me never. He says so much dowry and gift, and I will give according as ye shall say unto me. But give me the damsel to wife. Listen, she's the one I know. And the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor, his father, deceitfully, and said, Because he hath defiled Dinah, their sister, and they said unto them, uh, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one that is uncircumcised, for there were, for that were a reproach unto us. But in this will we consent unto you. If ye will all if ye will be as we be, that every male of you be circumcised, well then will we give our daughters unto you, and we will take your daughters to us, and we will dwell with you, and we will become one people. So listen, if you'll do what we do, if you'll honor God through circumcision, then guess what? We'll make it right. And so this promise they make to him, he says, But if ye will not hearken unto us to be circumcised, then will we take our daughter and we will be gone. And their words pleased Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son. So they take back and they go back word to the people of their city and they say, hey, listen, this is what's got to happen. And listen, this is a great idea. You guys all need to get on board with this. We're going to do this thing. It's going to be great. And they're all like, okay, let's do it. Let's all get circumcised. So, so they do. Verse 24, we pick back up. And unto Hamor and unto Shechem, his son hearkened all they that went out of the gate of the city. And every male was circumcised, all that went out of the gate of his city. And it came to pass on the third day when they were sore. Okay, so now they're incapacitated. That the two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brethren, took each man his sword and came upon the city boldly and slew all the males. So when they cannot defend themselves, they come through and murder them. And they slew Hamor. And Shechem, the young man that loved Dinah, with the edge of the sword, and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went out. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and spoiled the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their sheep and their oxen and their asses and that what was in the city and that which was in the field and all, that, and all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives took they captive and spoiled even all that was in the the house. So Levi and Simeon have committed this despicable act under the guise of protecting the honor of their sister. It is done in vengeance. It was wrong. Now, but if it was just that, in our humanity, I think a lot of us might be able to go, you know what, I can kind of see where they're coming from. I mean, hey, dude, you know, if that was my brother or my sister or my mom or my daughter... You know what? It'd be, I'd be hard-pressed not to be grabbing my sword or whatever thing I've got at my house and be like, you know what? I'm going to go get a little justice on my own. How many of us can relate to that? Yeah, right? Because think about it. We watch movies, right? And, and, and the dad's away and somebody comes in and wipes out the family. 
And the dad comes back and he's like, dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. dun. And he starts loading up guns and stuff like that. And we're like, yeah, go get them, pops. Yeah, man. Bring it on. Get them. Right? And we go through the whole thing and battle, 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 battle. And at the end, he's got the bad guy up against the wall, man. And he's like, ka, 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 ka. And the guy falls on the floor. And we're like, yeah, serves him right. Yeah. Right? Am I the only one? Okay. Yeah, we all think that way. Because guess what? That's kind of our natural way of thinking. An eye, an eye for an eye. That's Hammurabi's code. But what we understand is the fact that, listen, though we may be able to understand it, perspective in our emotions, it doesn't make it right. Okay? What does the Lord tell us about vengeance in Romans chapter 12, verse 17 through 19? He says, recompense to no man evil for evil. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. Now, let's take Simeon and Levi and see how they did on that. If they were evil for evil, uh, yeah. Were they honest in sight of all men? No. They lied, and when given the chance to reconcile, they betrayed and murdered not only the perpetrator, but also those that were innocent bystanders as well. Notice what it says in verse 18. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Now, I know that the, I love the fact that there's a qualifier in there. He says, if it be possible. Because I'm just telling you, there are some people... And it ain't possible to live peaceably with them. Some people are just adversarial by nature, you know? But the question is, are we going to feed into that adversarial attitude and elevate the situation, or are we going to come back with grace and love? Because I can promise you, how many of us have ever gotten into a heated situation, and they came with you with heat, and you came back with heat, and what happens? Kaboom, man, it's going to be on like Donkey Kong. It's going. But if you come back with grace, it's possible that you can diffuse the situation. All right, so that's what God's trying to help us, help us to see. Verse 19, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Okay? Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. So God sets the precedence for this all the way back in Genesis chapter number 4, verse 15. As he's addressing after Cain kills Abel, he says, hey, nobody, nobody go after Cain. See, God has a way of dealing with Cain. Cain's going to live with his choice, and it's going to be a long-term impact. But what happens is you've got to realize the fact that the hardest thing that you and I struggle with is exactly what we were talking about in that song, praising God in the waiting. Because we look at someone who's done something wrong and we go, how much longer are they going to go unpunished? Are there people in our lives right now that maybe have wronged us and they've still gone unpunished? I would imagine probably most of us can think of somebody. But you know what? The timing's not up to us. See, this is the part. It's the faith part. Praising in the waiting. Knowing that God knows tomorrow. Knowing that God has a purpose for even this. Even the way that you were wronged is teaching you something. It's teaching you how to forgive. Because you know what happens? You meet people that were wronged when they were young people, children, young adults, and they're 60, 70, 80 years old, and they are so bitter and eaten up with hatred that they can't even live life. Every part of their life is a wreck because of the fact that they've never learned to forgive this one who doesn't deserve forgiveness. But guess what? None, neither, none of us 
deserve forgiveness, and yet God gives it to us. Right? And so we look into this story and we go, okay, what's taking place? God is going to bring justice. But can I tell you, the point is this. We've got to be willing to trust that He knows what's best, and He knows the circumstance that person needs to go through in order to bring about His will. Can I promise you that no one escapes God's justice? Not a single solitary one. Even if they left this earth and they never faced justice here, can I promise you that one day they will stand before the judge of all judges, the king of all kings, and they will stand accountable for their sin. Right? God is a just God. So our responsibility is to represent the Lord during that time. Our job is to, to love both friend and foe alike. What does the Bible tell us about loving our enemies? What did Jesus say to us? Right? Matthew 5, verses 43 through 44, in the Beatitudes, he says this, Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But let me, let me mix things up for you, he says. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Hello. And pray for them, listen to this, which despitefully use you, and listen to the last one, and persecute you. To be persecuted means to be wronged. You're, you're, you're treated awfully for doing something that's good. For goodness sakes, listen to that. You're supposed to pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. God says, this is the plan. Now, this is not easy. But can I tell you, it is godly. This is God's expectation of us. Because it is only through the power of love that an enemy could ever become a friend and that that friend could ever become a brother or sister. Love is the bridge, right? Love builds bridges. Anger builds walls. And so we've got to always be conscious of that truth. And so we know that God's in control, that God is working. Because you see, realize that not only is He our defender, but He's also our avenger, right? He's the one that fights for us, and He does it in the right time, in the right way to be most effective if we'll just get out of the way and trust Him in the midst, if we'll praise Him in the waiting. That's hard. Remember this, a vengeful spirit is not a godly spirit. It is a spirit of Antichrist. Romans 12, 19. Remember what it said? Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. So are we willing to trust and let God do what He needs to do? We have to entrust justice to the Lord. And so what Simeon and Levi did was absolutely wrong. But did you notice what they did after, after they spilled blood? Well, so it was supposedly in vengeance. It was all about, right, one uh, about, about uh, dealing with the offender. But they didn't just deal with the offender. Then they enriched themselves. They were like, well, hello. Right? So what happened was this vengeance turned into a payday. And supposedly was about their sister, suddenly became about them. And they enriched themselves and made themselves wealthy through this behavior. And as a result of this behavior, this, this lineage, this destruction that they left behind. I want you to hear when, remember we were in, in, uh, in Genesis 49 and we've been listening to, to Jacob's blessing upon his people, blessing upon his sons. I want you to hear what the blessing 
unto these two comes across as. Genesis chapter 49, verses 5 through 7. Simeon and Levi are brethren. Instruments of cruelty are in their habitations. O my soul, come not thou into their secret, unto their assembly, mine honor. Be not thou united, for in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they dig down a wall. That means they stole, they robbed. Verse 7, cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Now, remember, they did not get any land of their own. They were given cities that they could live amongst their brethren. Is that not a pretty clear delineation of exactly what's going on? They're scattered amongst their brethren. But we notice, listen, instead of being blessed with, with a, with a uh, instead of receiving a blessing, they actually are receiving a curse. Now, this is true not only for Simeon, but also for Levi. Now, so the Levites also experienced a curse. But what's interesting about the Levites is they had a moment of redemption. Remember Genesis 32? or Exodus 32, when they're at the, the base of, of Mount Sinai and the golden calf, and, Jesus, and Moses says, who is on the Lord's side? Man, guess who comes and shows up? The Levites. They redeem themselves. God pulls them out, right? Now, ultimately, they will not receive land. God is going to give them just cities that they get to dwell within. But what he does is he wants himself, his relationship, their relationship with him to be their inheritance, they're not to have a physical inheritance. They're supposed to be spiritual inheritance, which is this beautiful relationship with God. But what we find with Simeon is Simeon does not have a redemption story. He doesn't see, we don't see redemption in their past. So what we find with them is they're scattered amongst their brethren, like just like the Levites, where only they're not given anything as a physical identity. They're just inhabiting cities that happen to be in Judah's land. And what's interesting as we go into the story of Israel, and we look at what happens to them as a whole as time moves forward as a nation. Following the death of King Saul in the 10th century, what will happen is the 12 tribes will become divided. We see this in 1 Kings chapter 12. Disputes over power and, and ego are fueled by pride. They will tear the nation apart. And we see a map. You can look at your map, and you see that red line that I so clumsily drew in there. It's hard to draw with your finger. You know what I'm saying? Because you can't see what's underneath your finger, and you lift it up, and you're like, that's not good. And I'm like, I, I did it like nine times. Anyway, it's as good as I could do. But anywho, this line, what we see is here's Judah, and here's Benjamin. And what we'll notice in a minute is you're going to notice that Simeon is just gone. So this becomes Judah, and this becomes Israel. This is called the Ten Tribes the northern tribes of Israel. Their capital will be a place called Samaria. Judah will become, Benjamin and Judah will become one. This becomes Judah, and their capital will be Jerusalem. Okay? So that's how the break is going to, going to take place. Again, there is no indicator of what happens to Simeon, but we do know because those, the northern tribes are called the ten tribes, that somehow they came out of Judah, and guess what? They just kind of spilled into and were scattered amongst the children of of Israel, exactly what, Jen, what Jacob said. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Between these two kingdoms, there would be continual conflict. There's always going to be this rub. Rehoboam's to be king, and there's all this, God bless you, love. And so there's all this struggle that's taking place. Again, it's about power 
It's about control. All the same stuff we see in border skirmishes in the world today. All the same garbage. All fueled by pride. All fueled by power. The same things are taking place of them. And these people that were once united had become divided and broken because of the prideful and selfish desires of individuals. But when we think about the, what happens when those are divided, what did the Lord teach us about division? Notice this in Luke eleven seventeen. This is the Lord. He says this, But he, knowing their thoughts, said unto them, Every kingdom, notice this, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. This is the story of Israel. Okay? This is the story. And it says, And a house divided against a house falleth. So this is their story. It's one of division that would ultimately bring destruction. But I want to ask you this. Is it your story? Is your house divided? Husband against wife. Wife against husband. Children against parent. Because the warning there is that if your house is divided, what did Jesus just say? Falleth. It falleth. Right? Then how about this? Is your life divided? Right? Well, I've got my Christian life where I look the part, act the part, say all the right things, everybody thinks this of me. And then I've got the real me over here who's consumed with the world. And I have these two sides of my identity. Am I a house divided? Right? Because the danger is, what does it say? It falleth. What does the Bible tell us in James 1.8? A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. So why do things fall? Because they're unstable, right? And he says, a double-minded man. So I'm, I'm a Christian, and I look like the world. I've got a foot in both places, and guess what? I have, not, I have no stability, because guess what? The things that are Christ-like, they conflict with the things that are not Christ-like. And the things that are not Christ-like are conflicting with those things that are Christ-like. And this is conflict in my own heart. And as opposed to being united as a whole, as Israel was at one time, they became a divided kingdom because guess what? They established these other camps. This is what we're going to do. I'm going to be here and here. You can't be. You just can't be. We have to decide who it is we're going to be and be that person. If we're effectively going to be used effectively by the Lord in the world, you can't be double-minded because it will ultimately end up with fall. Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. Disunity leads to destruction. And ultimately, this will be what happens to the children of Israel. Ultimately, it will lead to destruction. In 722 B.C., Assyria is going to come. And you can see it listed for us in 2 Kings 17. You can read the chronicle of what takes place. The Assyrians come in and guess what? They take over Israel. It falls, and they enslave the people. And then about a few hundred years later, in 586 B.C., Judah will also fall under a similar fate. Only now it will be the Babylonians. It's recorded for us in 2 Kings 25. And the Babylonian captivity will be for about a 70-year period. God's getting back His, his Sabbaths. But what we find with the, the other, the ten, is they never really come out of that Assyrian rule. They never really come out of it. Notice that a Samaritan, right? This is the capital city of, of Israel. They were called half-breeds, right? Because what happened was they assimilated with those Assyrian people. And what happened was those ten tribes just kind of dissolved, 
they just kind of vanished. And they eventually were called the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's how Jesus referenced them in Matthew 10, 6 and Matthew 15, 24. Remember Jacob's prophecy? I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. The exact thing that he said would happen to Simeon is exactly what happened. And that's going to be their story. And what's interesting is for about 600 years, the name of Simeon is gone. No mention. And then suddenly, at the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, that name shows up again. And here we see the redemption of Simeon. Luke 2, verse 25 to 34. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And the same man was just and devout. Listen to that. He was just, proper justice, and he was devout. He was committed to God, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Ghost was upon him. Recognize here, Old Testament economy. The Old that does not say the Holy Ghost is inside of him. It's not the Holy Spirit. He's not the indwelling Holy Spirit. Remember, we're still in the Gospels. We're still in an Old Testament economy. Jesus has not died. The death of the testator, the New Testament has not taken effect. So he doesn't have the Spirit in him. He has the Spirit upon him, right? That's what it says. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost. So now that Holy Ghost speaks to him and says, Hey, listen, let me show you something. That he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Hello. Right? The Messiah. Verse 27. And he came by the Spirit into the temple. God led him there. And when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him after the custom of the law. Guess what the custom of the law is? Circumcision. Now, how interesting that Simeon's name, now a circumcision is going to be taking place that he is a part of, and it's just, and it's devout, and it's to honor God. Remember, Simeon before used circumcision for his own purposes, and what was designed as a covenant with God was used for selfish, destructive act. And so not only was Simeon dis, dis, uh, uh, I don't know the word to use, I don't know, did, not only was Simeon impacted by it in a horrible, negative way, but circumcision was used the way it was not intended to be used. And so now God, 600 years later, through circumcision, that little thread that runs through time, he goes, hey, when Simeon shows up again, guess what? I'm going to redeem circumcision too. I'm going to go back to the covenant that I made with my people. How beautiful is the Bible that all these little details work together. Verse 28. Then took him, took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, so here, outside of his family, as far as we know, this is the only other person that's held Jesus. He's holding the baby Christ. He says, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation. I'm holding the Lamb of God that cometh to take away the sins of the world. Notice this. Which thou hast prepared before the face of all people. Notice verse 32. A light to lighten the Gentiles. Hello, the world. Notice, and the glory of thy people Israel. He's come for the world. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. And Simeon blessed them and said unto Mary his mother, Behold, just so you know, Mary, this child is set for the fall. He's going to suffer. 
rising again of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against. They're going to speak against him, but he's come to do a job to redeem this broken world, Gentile and Jew. How awesome is this? All tied to the name Simeon. How amazing is the Bible? Today, we've witnessed the destructive impact of fleshly, sinful decisions. We've seen the damage done and the legacy left behind by selfish choices that defy God. And then we've also witnessed the restorative hand of God reaching into someone's story and making it new. Do you see a picture? Right? Can I ask you, has God done that for you? Has he reached into your story and redeemed your name? Has he given you, has he taken you from ruin to redemption? Redeemed your name and made it new. Can I tell you that 22 years ago, that's what he did for me. My name was directly attached to sin, frustration, anger, bitterness, uh, brokenness, uh, resentment, hopelessness. That's what you would have attached to me. And yet God, in His mercy, said, you know what? David Goodson, there's a lot of things connotated with that. I'm changing that. I'm going to reach into your story. I'm going to change your name. And instead of being attached to sin and destruction, I'm going to take your name and I'm going to attach it to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you'll become a story of redemption and of hope to hopeless people. You see the power of God to do what is so undeserved by us. I am no one special. I am the least of these. But man, can I tell you, because of God's love, because of God's forgiveness, because of His patience and His willingness to work with what's this, He can change us. He can use us for something glorious. Because He is who He is. He loves us in spite of ourselves. So again, I ask you, has your name been made new? Right? Has your story, has it become one of hope? There are Christians here today who don't live with hope. They believe the lie that the devil whispers in their ears of hopelessness, and they swallow it. And it affects their countenance. And they become that light with a bushel over it. Right? The Bible tells us to let your light so shine before men that they may serve good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. The word is let. It means you'll naturally shine if you just get out of the way. But what happens is the devil goes, it's not true. You're not, you're not victorious. You're not a conqueror. You're defeated. Life is hopeless. Just trust because I'm telling you the truth. He's a liar. He's a liar. We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. God has a purpose and a plan for your life. Whether you can see it or not does not matter because I can promise you it's true. And he has changed your story, but you have to, 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 to receive it. And the key is you have to live it. Because it's one thing to maybe know in your head that you're a child of God and he's given you a new life. And it's a whole other thing to living it. And when we live it, it makes a difference. When we live it, we bring hope to other people. When we live it, right, the light of God shines out of our life and changes people's eternity. 
God has given us an opportunity to be used for His glory. If you have not received Him, if you don't know for sure, if He hasn't changed your name and He hasn't given you a story of hope, well, today can be your day. Because can I promise you that no matter where you are, no matter how broken, no matter how dark it may seem, where you are, that the loving eyes of God will come down right where you are in the midst of your disgusting sin, your brokenness, your, your hopelessness. He'll come right where you are. And He will look you in, you in your eyes with love and forgiveness and take you from ruin to redemption. He can heal any heart, no matter how broken you may think you are and how hopeless you may think the situation. Put your faith in Christ and Christ alone. Give Him your heart and watch Him redeem your life and give you a story that will change this world. God wants to do a great work in your life. Don't accept the lie. I can't use you because I can promise you that He can. I'm living proof. I don't deserve to be standing here telling you this. But God chose. And you know what? All you have to do is show up. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to be talented. I have proven that time and time again. You just got to show up and be willing. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for loving us, being so, so good to us. God, I just am constantly just flabbergasted at your goodness. And I do pray, Father, for my brothers and sisters, those dealing with adversities and challenges, and God, maybe those that are maybe dealing with conflict in their own hearts, feeling divided, double-minded. Lord, would you help them? Would you help them, Lord, to set their affection on things above and not on things of the earth? Would you break through the lie and help them, Lord, realize that there is a love relationship with you that's the most fulfilling thing we could ever have? Thank you for the picture through the tribe of Simeon and the restoration, Lord, that you've shown us. I pray, Father, that you do a work. Do work in our hearts and our lives. God, help us to be who it is you've called us to be. There is, God, such a great work to be done. And Lord, you need just people that are not talented or skilled, just those that are willing to be committed, committed to your work and your will. With their heads bowed and eyes closed. If you're here today and you say, listen, I don't know where I stand with God. I'm not sure. Listen, this is not a religious thing. This is not a, a church thing. This is a relationship between a loving God that knows you intimately. He knows how broken you are. He knows where you are in every aspect of who you are and where you've come from. And yet he loves you the same way he did me. And he's willing to redeem you, to come where you are and restore you and give you that new name. It only takes, it only takes faith. There's no ceremony. There's no magic prayer. It's just a broken heart calling out to a loving God. And if you feel him drawing you, you're listening to this recorder, you're watching us online, and you want to receive Christ as your Savior, he's waiting on you. Just respond. So with our heads bowed and eyes closed, if you want to respond to the call you feel on your heart, you want to receive Christ as your Savior, I'm going to give you that chance right now. Again, there's no magic in the prayer. It's your heart speaking to God. In your heart and mind, repeat after me as we talk to him. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner and I am so very sorry for my sin. I believe that you died on the cross, that you were buried in a borrowed tomb and on the third day you rose again, conquering death, hell and the grave. It's in your power, God, that I ask that you would redeem me, that you would restore me, 
that God, you would save my soul and give me a home in heaven. God, thank you for loving me. Thank you for saving me. By faith, I put my full life into your hands. Help me live for you. For it's in Jesus' name I pray and give thanks. Amen.